Later this week, on October 22nd, we'll celebrate the Feast of St. John Paul II. And he really encouraged the church throughout his pontificate that we should move towards a new evangelization. And when St. John Paul II thought about a new evangelization, he wanted to take us back to the 50s, not the 1950s, but the 50s AD, to that original evangelization of the early Christians, of St. John, the beloved disciple, and St. Paul, the apostle, going out and bringing the good news to the world. And with the name John Paul II, I'm sure he thought about those early Christians, but he brought everything in his pontificate towards this great jubilee year, 2000, and the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Christ. And he wanted us to begin this new millennium with the idea of Christ and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Well, what is new about the new evangelization? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. When I think about St. John Paul II and the new evangelization, here at the Augustine Institute, that was really the inspiration for this, this institute. And uh, I'm really happy to have a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Sean Innerst, who is the dean here at the Augustine Institute and been a professor at the founding and uh, our founding dean as well. And I really want to share and reminisce with you, Sean, about the new evangelization because you know, I think a lot of people thought this, this idea of a new evangelization was a fad, that it was something that just came for maybe a, a couple of years or for a decade, but it really has legs because it's a, it's a, it's a mission that's bigger than a theme for a three-year church project, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, Tim. Um, obviously, evangelization itself is a part of the church's essential mission. Second Vatican Council made that very clear. Um, Pope John Paul picked up on that, of course, as had his predecessor, Paul VI. Um, so the church is always engaged in the work of evangelization. As you suggested, the, you know, that extra adjective new uh, suggests that we ought to be newly about the work of evangelizing, but the church is always evangelizing. So yes, it has legs. It does, and I think <laughs> that you know, when John Paul, throughout his, his incredibly impactful and long pontificate, he was a magnanimous person. He thought big. He, he went big. And so I, I think of him looking at uh, the new millennium and this idea that the church needs to re-embark in the West. And, and do you think that as he looked at the church in the West, when he thought about a new evangelization and a new springtime for the church, you could kind of say, well, if there's a new evangelization, the old had kind of gotten worn out. And if that there's a springtime that maybe we're in winter. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people think that John Paul was, you know, naively optimistic, but he was a, he he had great hope, but he, I don't think he was naive when he talked about these things. No, no, not at all. Um, as a matter of fact, in his very first uh, encyclical, um, the Redeemer of Man in English, um, he mentions the coming turn of the millennium. And he also mentions the necessity of engaging in a new or re-evangelization. So uh, right from the very beginning of his pontificate, he recognized um, that the church was floundering a bit in terms of its, um, its evangelical energies, which Paul VI had already referred to in his document mm -hmm. on the same mm -hmm. topic. Um, and, and in that first encyclical, he talks a little bit about um, some of the initiatives that Paul VI 
had suggested. But then he also talks about certain shadows, we could call them, that had entered into the church's life and a kind of waning of evangelical energy. He speaks specifically of a kind of what he calls a, a hyper self-criticism within the church. And so he sees a new direction as necessary throughout the life of the church, a kind of reorientation, but that's going to also include uh, the church's apostolic work and evangelization. You know, uh, along those lines, two years before he's made Pope, so he's made Pope October 22nd, uh -huh. uh, 1978. Mm -hmm. Two years before that, he does the Lenten retreat for the <laughs> papal household and for a lot of the cardinals in Rome. And here is this uh, young, dynamic man from Poland who gets tapped to to give the retreat for the papal audience. Yeah. And, you know, the, the title that he chose for that retreat really speaks to the, his both his boldness and also his sobriety that the church was going to face trouble in the world today, yeah. in the modern world. I mean, it was, he entitled it a, a sign of contradiction. Yeah, you know, yeah. He, um, uh, as you say, he was sometimes uh, characterized as being overly naive or overly optimistic. He was simply possessed of theological hope. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think George Weigel reports that the, the nickname they gave him inside the Vatican was His Holiness the Hope <laughs> rather than the Pope. So, uh, so his, um, his optimism was actually the theological virtue of hope. Uh, he wasn't naive. I mean, how could a man who had lived through, um, you know, yeah. the Nazi regime and the communist regime in Poland yeah. be, uh, yeah. you know, a Pollyanna. Yeah, he, exactly. he recognized the, the, the difficulties, the frailties of, of human life and, and history. Um, but, but he was possessed of um, theological hope, right? Mm. A yep. belief that God would win out in the end. Yeah, his faith was robust. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I love about him is that he, wherever he went, he proclaimed the gospel boldly. And, and I think back to our experience Mm -hmm. uh, back in 1993, you and I were working for a young bishop at the time, <laughs> Archbishop, then Bishop Shapu, Charles Shapu, mm -hmm. uh, of Rapid State, South Dakota. And you and I went down with all the youth from Rapid down to Denver for World mm -hmm. Youth Day yeah. and uh, had that chance to experience St. John Paul you know, II in action with the young people. Yeah, yeah. And that was, uh, that was quite an event. Um, I think it's not only marked Denver and its environs, but I think it marked the world. Mm. Um, it set a kind of trajectory um, for the whole of the West, especially the United States. Um, uh, it certainly touched our lives in, in a particularly acute way and uh, launched us on uh, you know, a journey we couldn't have uh, calculated in advance, but it was, it was a remarkable event. And of course, the World Youth Days were an important part of JP2's program. You know, I think, I think he made a considered decision to not worry so much about the Roman Curia, um, perhaps even his own generation, and decided to appeal to the next generation. Um, I, others have called it the Joshua principle, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of bypassing this generation and moving mm -hmm. to the next as Joshua wandered with one generation in Israel and waited for the next to arise, capable of taking the promised land. Well, you know, and then of course later on, you, you moved to Denver and uh -huh. uh, I followed a number of years later, but uh, really in Denver, we saw the first fruits of that new evangelization, didn't we? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of apostolic initiatives here, born of the energy that arose from that event. Um, not just the, the work we've done, but a number of our friends and other people mm -hmm. in the Denver Archdiocese um, were inspired by what happened um, during those few days in that summer of 1993. And, um, and we even referred to the seminarians we had in the seminary at the time as, as JP2 seminarians, right? Yeah. Uh, they were inspired by his leadership, his vision, and uh, it, was a, it has been a joy to, to teach those folks. And, yeah, of course, here at the Augusta too, you know, we've talked about being a new kind of graduate school for the new evangelization as our early tagline. Yeah. And uh, talk about how the new evangelization um, has influenced our, our work here at the Augusta Institute. Well, um, we've talked about this so often, so I feel like I'm going over well-worn ground sitting in, in your presence talking about this, but um, when we, uh, when we generated the idea, I think God planted it in our hearts, uh, the idea was to generate a school which was capable of equipping people for the work of evangelization and catechesis. And so we, we didn't want to particularly repurpose other kinds of theological programs, which we had both experienced mm -hmm. and gone through ourselves, yeah. but wanted to uh, arrange a curriculum that was specifically for this purpose of training people who could answer the call of, of mm -hmm. St. John Paul II. Uh, to, to work in the new evangelization. So the whole of the regime that we were trying to generate was precisely a response to that call and uh, exploring ways in which we could help people respond mm -hmm. to that call in the next generation. When you look back and think of, you know, when it's, it's his feast day mm -hmm. on uh, October 22nd, when you think of St. John Paul II, what, what jumps to your mind the most? has been impactful for you personally? Oh gosh, uh, there's so many things. But, um, you know, when he was first elected, I was, I was on a student work exchange in Scotland and, um, and I was working with a guy who was a ex-Catholic, anti-Catholic. Mm. And uh, I remember we were operating room orders, orderlies in a hospital in Scotland. And I remember sitting next to him and having him mock me actually over the death of John Paul I. You know, did God get it wrong? How come the Pope only lived for 33 days, you know? Oh, so God makes mistakes. And, and I remember the feeling of vindication when JP II was elected and here comes this strong, mm. uh, you know, athletic young Pole with this booming baritone voice and the confidence that he exuded in, in the church um, well, I, I, I felt like I had one-upped my, well, my critic. Who can forget his opening <laughs> words on that balcony of St. Peter's, you know, be not afraid. Yeah. That does yeah. embody so much of his, of that man. Yeah, yeah. that's right. He, he had a kind of fearlessness, a kind of physical fearlessness. You know, mm -hmm. some people embody, mm -hmm. and of course the, you know, the author of the theology of the body should <laughs> appropriately embody mm -hmm. the kinds of things he's, he's saying. But, but that was one of his mm -hmm. uh, skills, you know, because he had been an actor mm -hmm. and he was capable of enacting the things that he spoke about. He didn't just speak or write. He was a, he was a, a, a world figure on the world stage and, and had a physical presence mm -hmm. that was moving. And, uh, and he gave this sense of confidence, uh, which was infectious. You know, we, we, uh, we grew by his confidence, mm. so that that was a very that was a, a very uh, 
prominent feature of JP2's style, at least in the early days. Of course, yeah. he declined with age over his long pontificate. When we think of his legacy, and there's so many things to talk about, but what, what stands out in terms of John Paul's legacy that he's left the church? Well, I'd say actually, um, uh, this, uh, this is a little bit more arcane kind of point, but, um, but he made certain associations in the way in which he framed evangelization, um, which we're still learning from and applying. Um, and one of those is, as I said before, the importance of enacting things. He, he wrote a book called The Acting Person. Mm -hmm. And his, uh, his theology, his ecclesiology of evangelization or mission, included the necessity of acting out in accord with your, your, uh, your inner dynamism. So he would always say things like, Christian, be who you are, mm -hmm. right? And he was calling the church to be who she was supposed to be by engaging in evangelization. And, and I think we're still living with the fruit and exploring the possibilities of that, that principle, right? The necessity of acting in accord with your inner dynamism that it's not enough to simply be, you have to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so th that I would say that's part of his theological legacy as, as far as the mission of the church is concerned. John Paul was such a great leader, but he was also a great thinker, and he led with, with thinking uh, yeah. in, in his words. Yeah. What, uh, you know, he wrote so much. What, what do you think is going to have um, long legacy in the church that we're going to reflect on for generations that he wrote? Well, Veritatis Splendor, I think, mm -hmm. um, probably fairly late in his, uh, mm -hmm. in his pontificate. Um, well, the second half anyway, but he, um, uh, he, he gave us a grounding for moral teaching going forward. He, he, um, he did something interesting in that document and in others. He, he tried to ground uh, moral teaching not just in the natural law, which was, had sort of been the pattern from uh, 1968, Umani Vitae forward. Um, he, he wanted to connect everything with scripture. So, you know, each one of the chapters is, uh, features a scripture quote, which he cites as, as a biblical foundation for a moral theology. So he was trying to, he was, he was, he was profoundly evangelical mm -hmm. in all the works that he did in terms of yeah. citing the gospel itself. And he's, and in that work in particular, um, he sets us off once again in a fruitful new direction in moral theology. Uh, that in addition to the wonderful work he did as regards missiology, you know, mm -hmm. the church's work of mission. Talk about the, the catechism of the Catholic Church. That was oh, a gosh. big project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, this man, John Paul was a man of big projects. Yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah. Uh, where does that fit into his plan? He's got a plan to renew the church. Yeah. Where does the catechism fit into that plan? Well, it was, it was a very important project, um, both for he and his right-hand man, then Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger. Um, in his document on mission, uh, the mission of the Redeemer, he says specifically that the failure of mission is, uh, or to engage in mission, is a crisis of faith. And he meant not simply the act of faith, but the content of faith. So um, I, I would say he, um, he set upon a kind of uh, two-pronged attack, right? One, uh, the church needs to engage in mission to be what she, is really, what she really is, mm -hmm. right? But she needs to be armed with the requisite content of the faith 
uh, in a renewed expression for our time in order for that crisis of faith to be overcome. So the church can't engage in, miss in mission without having a gospel to proclaim. So the, the catechism, I think, was an important element in the work of the, you know, it, it occurred 20 years after the council. That's where the, the instigation came from the Synod of Bishops. And uh, I think both he and Ratzinger recognized that without uh, a handbook uh, for that work of proclamation, uh, that the mission couldn't get underway. And there were, there were a number of misunderstandings about the content of church teaching, with, which had sort of come to be abroad in those days. Um, and so he really thought, uh, this is absolutely necessary. We need a handbook for evangelization in terms of the content of the faith. So do you think that idea of having this handbook on the content of the faith came out of the confusion that followed? I mean, you know, Pope Benedict has talked about this, yeah. the confusion that followed the Second Vatican Council, and he was trying to clarify the church's teaching. Is that part of what he was doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the Synod of Bishops uh, speaks of this, uh, that the typical phrase is, is bright spots and shadows, right? So, um, you know, there are certain advantages which have accrued to the church since the Second Vatican Council, a kind of openness to the world, a, a certain new energy. But, um, but there were also a lot of people who were spinning the council documents in ways that caused theological misunderstandings. And, uh, and of course, there was the, the, the huge controversy over Humani Vitae under mm -hmm. Paul VI, which JP II had helped to frame, mm -hmm. apparently, right? We now know. Um, so he realized from his own experience, I think, uh, uh, Episcopal experience, and having seen what happened with that revolt during the papacy of Paul VI, the necessity of the promulgation of the credo of the people of God, under Paul VI, which was sort of a, a minor version of the same kind of thing. And he recognized that, um, that there, was, there were these, um, uh, you know, there were certain paths that were leading away from the possibility of Christian conviction. And so those mm -hmm. need, people needed to be drawn back. Well, you know, you talk about these paths that he, both John Paul II and Pope Benedict were worried about people, you know, changing churches, church teaching yeah. and using Vatican II as cover, the yeah. spirit of Vatican II. The spirit of Vatican II. Um, but now, Sean, there's, there's people out there, and it's, it, seems to has, it seems to have grown over the last several years, mm -hmm. that on a more conservative side, who even question the validity of Second Vatican Council. I mean, they, what, what would John Paul say to that? <laughs> well, he was a champion of the council, mm -hmm. um, and not just a champion of the council, he's one of the framers of the council. Mm -hmm. He had numerous interventions on the council floor as then an auxiliary bishop, because he was auxiliary bishop before he became Archbishop of Krakow. So, so he was an active contributor and probably helped to frame some of the most uh, cogent elements in you know, the document Gaudium et Spes, for example, probably also in Lumen Gentium. Um, but um, so he was a champion of the council but he recognized, as we said before, that, that certain people were steering it in a different direction. And he also recognized that certain emphases that had sort of been even part of the papal magisterium of, of Paul VI um, were leading uh, down dead ends, right? And so he sort of wanted to draw back. Uh, conservatives today uh, who suggest that the council is to be called into question because of those variations that. Of, of interpretation that some people draw from it is it's it's, uh, it's misleading 
most unfortunate, right? The, the, the council will be, and, and JP2 says this specifically, he says the, the directions uh, indicated by the council will for a long time mm. uh, be the direction in which the church must move, right? But he also recognized that there were these uh, wayward interpretations that had to be dealt with. You know, it, it's unfortunate that you know, for John Paul and, and for Pope Benedict, they were trying to show that the council was faithful. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, an aberration or a, a breaking from the church's tradition, mm -hmm. but, and their pontificates were teaching and clarifying that. Yeah. And for people today, after their pontificates now, to simply say, well, Vatican II was trying to change the church's teaching, they're siding with the very opponents <laughs> on the left yeah. that John Paul II and Benedict were opposing. Yeah, that's right. Um, once again, you know, going back to the catechism, the catechism is really, I would say, uh, the uh, proper interpretation of the, of the council documents. I, I gave a talk during the Year of Faith quite some time ago now, but it was titled Getting the Council, mm -hmm. and it was based on, the, on what the catechism says about these various mm -hmm. issues of controversy from, from the Second Vatican Council. You get clear statements, in a certain sense, corrective statements because mm -hmm. more because a little simpler, mm -hmm. more direct mm -hmm. uh, than the longer text that you get in the in the council yep. documents, yep. and and they were intended to clarify these mm -hmm. issues, right? So if you want to understand the proper interpretation of the Second Vatican Council, don't look at the wayward theologians. Look at the catechism, yeah. and the catechism was carefully crafted to face particular issues. Uh, that Ratzinger was seeing, you know, in his position at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and knew needed to be Adjust. responded to. So I, I know some of the people who are involved in, in framing out certain parts of the catechism, they were specifically tasked with making sure th certain things were said to correct, you know, uh, common errors at the time. So it's, it's a tremendous resource. Well, the Catechism is a great aid to understanding the, the Second Vatican Council and yeah. clarification. That was one of his yeah. drives for that. Well, when we talk about St. John Paul II, he's a saint now, he's canonized. Mm -hmm. You know, Pope Francis uh, oversaw the canonization of, of John Paul II. Let's talk about the spirituality of John Paul. What strikes you? What, what's that spiritual energy that made him a saint? Yeah, oh my goodness. Well, um, you know, he's, he's famously understood to be a Carmelite. Jan Tiranovsky, his mentor when he was a, a young man, actually, um, when he was working during the Second World War, I think in a quarry and a, mm -hmm. and a chemical plant, he met Jan, Jan Tiranovsky, who was a layman, who was a lay Carmelite, third mm -hmm. order Carmelite, I think. And, uh, and that set him on a Carmelite trajectory. He wanted to be a Carmelite, I think. Uh, decided instead to be a diocesan priest. Um, he wrote his doctoral dissertation in theology on St. John of the Cross, faith in St. John of the Cross. So, uh, which, is, which is odd because he's such a public figure, you know, the Carmelites are famous for going and living on mountains, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so Maybe that's the John part of his <laughs> that's name, right? right? Uh, <laughs> contemplative, beloved disciple, yeah. and the Paul part is his... Yeah, is the evangelical, evangelical. spirit. Yeah. Uh, so he combined those two. Um, I always had this sense about JP too that um, he was a little bit bashful about having to be the man out front. Um, there was always, he was very confident and good at doing it and he was so wonderful at engaging his audiences, his congregations. Um, but you always had the sense that there was a certain measure of shyness there that he had to overcome. 
And I think that's sort of the Carmelite, that original desire to be a Carmelite. Um, but, but he put that aside, I would say, so that he could do what God had called him to do, which mm -hmm. is to be this monumental figure on the historical stage. And so f for me, I've always interpreted that as, as an act of uh, extreme self-abnegation, mm -hmm. right? He, um, because he knew he had the skills to do this well, he, he put the desire for silence and solitude aside and did what had to be done. That's a remarkable, and, and I would say particularly modern form of spirituality, right? The, mm -hmm. That um, not that you know, we think less of those who uh, mm -hmm. engage in the contemplative life, but having to lay that aside for the sake of souls is a, mm -hmm. is a particularly modern call, I would say. Talk about his, Marian devotion. That was something that a lot of people thought, well, this is kind of coming from the old world. He's coming from Poland. Yeah. That, that was some of the criticism, but he, he had a great love for Our Lady, didn't he? He had a deep love for Our Lady. Uh, of course, he was, he was consecrated to Our Lady in accord with the, the pattern laid out by, uh, by St. Louis de Montfort and, uh, and took that as his motto, totus tuus, from the time he was a bishop. So he just mm -hmm. took his Episcopal motto and made it his papal motto. Um, and, and it wasn't just an emblem for him, as we know, right? He, he lost his mother when he was nine, mm -hmm. and, um, and he needed another one. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> so he took the Blessed Mother, and, um, and she remained by his side throughout uh, when he was, uh, during the assassination attempt, of course, in 1981. It happened on the feast of Our Lady of Fatima, May 13th. And he believed that that her hand had guided the bullet away from, you know, uh, vital organs, and he credited her and actually had the bullet placed in the the crown of Our Lady of Fatima in the shrine in Fatima. Um, so uh, he he saw that Our Lady was with him and mm -hmm. she had guided him uh, to do what he needed to do, and she was a constant maternal presence for him, mm -hmm. and he did a great work. Um, of reviving Marian piety in the church. It, it had just begun to wane a bit uh, about, you know, after the council, uh, people were beginning to think, well, this is old fashioned. And here comes this, you know, pious pole. Young and vigorous. Yeah, young and vigorous. So he doesn't look old fashioned, um, but he holds to this tenaciously and um, lovingly, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing that you see in him, I, I wanted to mention. Um, uh, there's a picture of JP II uh, from his old days as Archbishop of Krakow, wearing full pontificals. You know, with the gloves, what a bishop wears at, at solemn liturgies, but with a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. <laughs> and and one of my friends who was Polish told me that he did that specifically, right, um, to indicate. Where everything, where everything we ever have been, mm. right, with all the accoutrements uh, mm -hmm. of, of the bishop, but we're also absolutely current. We're here now. Mm. Um, we're not a museum piece. Mm. And that, that, was, that was part of his gift, right? He, could, he, he clung to everything that was part of the church's tradition, but he made it new. He mm -hmm. had this capacity to do that. And you never thought of him as a fuddy-duddy mm -hmm. or old-fashioned. Well, some people did. But, mm -hmm. But uh, for the youth of the world and for yeah, those of us no. who 
responded to his call, he was he was current. He, yeah, he had the, the Nova et vetera, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the that's new right. And the old. That's right. Beautifully combined. Yeah. yeah. What do you think in terms of, um, uh, you know, he had this great love for the gospel and proclamation. And mm-hmm. I know that here at the Augusta Institute, we try at the graduate school to, to, to teach a lot of John Paul's theology. Uh-huh. And uh, there's a theology summit coming up. Why don't you just tell us what that is? Yeah, great. Thank you for, for that. Um, on Friday, November 12th, we're having a virtual theology summit here at the Augustine Institute. And anyone who might be a prospective student or interested in studying theology at the graduate level, we would invite you to uh, enroll. It's a two-hour presentation by seven of our professors, mm-hmm. uh, brief presentations. Yep. But you get a, get a great sense of uh, what we do here at the Augustine Institute, and you can find out whether or not you might be interested in joining us here in our scholarly community. There's, and we have people from all walks of life at the Augusta Institute oh, online sure with our online program, mm-hmm. right? People who are young and people who are yep. you know, finishing Not up a career so and want, want to <laughs> do this for personal enrichment, but they also want to do it for apostolic reasons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we have a tremendous variety of people. Um, we have very traditional students who are just coming out of college and they're a joy. Um, but so also our older students and our non-traditional students and folks engaged in all walks of life, as you say. Well, thank you for putting that together, and thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, it was a great uh, pleasure. It's too. a great great pleasure to talk yeah. about this great saint, St. Saint mm-hmm. John Paul II, and the great work of the new evangelization, which we're all summoned. John Paul made that clear, and the church and our Holy Father Pope Francis has made that clear that all of us are responsible for being agents of this new evangelization. And, uh, and there's a lot of hope for that new evangelization because it could bring conversion to this world. Thank you for joining us, and special thanks to all of you who support us at the Mission Circle. We're grateful for your support. It allows us to have this ministry. May the Lord bless and keep you all. You can watch this show in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, e-books, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustine Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.